I have done the really, really heavy lifting work that I needed to do to really attend to my inner child and reconcile my adult and baby me to start loving me. And it's always lip service until it can actually happen. But I'm at that place now, and that's the gift that my father's record gave me because it scared me. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to hear from Kamina. She called me from Dubai, but she grew up in Texas. Kamina was always confused about why she didn't look like her adoptive family, and no one would ever admit she was adopted. Turmoil between her adoptive parents led both of them to alcoholism, poor judgment, and an awful love triangle that got Kamina kicked out of her home at a tender age. After years on the street, then the military, Kamina decided part of ending her years of self-sabotage was to finally face the truth about her adoption she seemed to be running from. This is Kamina's journey. Kamina and I had a great chat before we started exploring her adoption journey. She told me about her very hard work as a professor in Baghdad, Iraq, and the challenges she faces as an American trying to teach the youth of a war-torn country with a controversial past with the United States. I hope you'll stay to the end to hear that conversation. At the end of our opening chat, right before we launched into Kamina's story, she had a question for me. Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah, please go ahead. Sure. Are you sure? Very personal. (laughs) I'm quite positive. Okay. How has all of this affected how you interact with your adopted son? Because you have a bio son and an adopted son, right? Yeah, I do. And part of my challenge in that question is that we don't have a relationship anymore, but it's not. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's it's tough. So So I'll give you sort of brief backstory. We adopted them when my so they're my niece and nephew on my wife's side of the family my so my daughter is the older of the two my son is the middle child and then my biological son is our youngest he's 15 so the older two are like 27 and 29 and Mm -hmm. to cut a long story short like my man had a rough go he was bounced around from house to house to house And basically the message that the world told him was you will be moved everywhere and you will not put down roots. And so you need to be independent. And so he developed a very, very independent streak. And we placed him in a military school, which I realize in hindsight was another message from the world saying you don't belong here. Now go over there. And while I Mm. won't say that I regret it, because he he absolutely needed that level of structure, I can see how it was a challenging reinforcement of what he believed about how yeah. he only needed himself. While what we saw was, you need more structure than what we can provide. So at any rate, he graduated the military school, went on to college. He did great his freshman year because he had been away at school. He had studied. And been on his own. And it was fine. It was second nature to him. But in his second year, he just went completely off the rails. And 
continuing to trim the story. Basically, we tried to get him back on the right track, and it just was not able to work out at all. And basically, he blames us for all of the things that didn't go right in his life. And at one point, you know, he he didn't have a job. He wasn't enrolled in school, and he would not consider the military. So he was basically just existing on our support. And we reached a point where we didn't want to just keep throwing the parachute out for him anymore. And so we told him, listen, either you get a job, go into the military, or get back enrolled in school, or you're on your own. And he basically just said, F you. And he disappeared. And he continued to be homeless. And as far as I know, he's homeless to this day in Los Angeles. So it's really tough. It's really tough. So to answer your question, like with our relationship with them, we tried to be as open and honest with them as possible. We took them to meet their biological mother, and uh, they didn't get what they wanted from that reintroduction, but it reinforced sure. what we had shared with them. Like, she's not capable of caring for you guys, and they got to see sort of, and I don't mean to be rude, I can't think of a better way to say this, but like kind of the dim light that she is, you know, she's sure. she's challenged. And um, well, they wouldn't have been with you if she was if she was a number one, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have been with you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and we poured out our hearts and did everything that we could with what we knew at the moment. You know, we did the best we could with the knowledge we had in the moment that we were living in. And, uh, and you know, out. now is post him then the, you didn't know all this stuff with, when you had him then. I knew. No, we knew we knew everything because, again, they're my niece and nephew. So I knew. No, their no, no. History. I mean, the adoption, adoption stuff, are, are all of the stuff that goes with adoption. Yes, that's all right. Of the things that you've learned. Yes. Right. So that piece so about reinforcing the, the independence message that the world gave him. I learned right. that through this podcast, that by continuing to bounce children around, you tell them they have no home anywhere. They don't belong anywhere and that nobody wants them. And while we had the absolute best of intentions trying to send him away to military school, it was at its core being sent away. And that's all. There's no other way to slice it. So, yeah, no, I don't mind answering personal questions at all. This is I don't (laughs) it would be unfair of me to sit here and ask everybody, tell me every intimate detail of your life. But please don't ask me any personal questions. That's just and and I'm I'm an adoptee just like you guys. So we've all got stories to tell. And it's important to get through them. Kamina forewarned me that one of her big, unhealed raw spots is race relations in adoption, transracial adoptee issues, and race relations in general across the globe. We agreed this is a safe space for Kamina to vent and recover if needed, so we got started. I usually start by asking my guests to tell me about their life growing up in adoption, but that question did not fit Kamina's life. Kamina is a late discovery adoptee, an LDA. She did not learn she was adopted until later in her life. So I asked her to describe life in general in her family and in her community. You know, it's really interesting. You had a a young woman on that I listened to and she said, I don't remember big pockets of my life because she was just trying to survive. So my early life is a, a lot of it is like that. It's like like the old school movie reels and like just catching bits and pieces of it. So I'm I'm half black 
American and half Sicilian Italian, but I identify as black and my hair is pretty curly and adopted into a white family and she had no idea. So this is a very vivid memory. Having to sit in a chair in the living room while she like ripped at my head and like, I don't know, I just kind of always ended up with like a mini afro because she didn't know what to do with my hair. And she said, well, if you're not going to sit still for me to comb it, then we're just going to cut it all off. And I got mistaken for a boy a lot. When I asked her only one time, because she's pretty venomous, but I asked her one time when she was registering me for school because I saw my birth certificate in her hand, I said, well, first of all, I said, why was I born in Dallas? Because we've never lived in Dallas. I'm from Odessa, Texas. I was born in Dallas, adopted apparently out of Dallas, but I was raised in Odessa, Texas, mostly Hispanic community. And there are black people in the community, but they were just not around me. Mostly white neighborhood, older folks, no kids, really. And I went to a school that was mostly Mexican-American. And the white kids that went there were magnet. Do, do, do you know what that is? Magnet school? No, tell me a little bit more. Like, it doesn't even feel right. It's like, <laughs> it feels like the d- division between like the poor kids and the rich kids. The white kids were bused in from out of district and the Mexican kids lived there in the neighborhood where the school was. And at 2.15, the Mexican-American kids got to walk home And we stayed for like extra stuff, like biology, like dissecting frogs or special math classes, stuff like that. And so the the Mexican-American kids were called core kids and we were magnet kids. And it just didn't, it just still talking about it now doesn't feel right. So that is literally the way it was. Magnet children are brought in to bring, it sounds like a socioeconomic balance to the school, that it's not just for lack of better words, poor kids. There are other kids mixed in. Is that r- roughly why it, the magnet? How magnet? I don't works? know. Well, well, why? Why didn't the Why didn't the local kids get to stay in the programs? Oh, interesting. Oh, so you, oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then so there, I I was one of maybe three black kids in the entire school, but I didn't know that I was black. Not only did I not know I was adopted, I didn't know I was black. What did you think you were or or what did the children around you assume you were? Did they assume you were Mexican as well? Kids don't really start talking about that stuff until middle school. And middle school is where, every, is where everything fell apart. Like we're just playing. We may notice it, but we're not really talking. Not that I heard really about that stuff. And I think that, did you ever watch the documentary called Little White Lies? No. It's spectacular if you if you haven't. Hmm. I believe she's an attorney now in New York and her her mother had an affair with a black guy that worked at the community center and she, her parents are Ashkenazi Jewish and she thought she, that both of them were her parents her whole life. Oh wow. And she looks just like me. And it's like her entire family like pulled the wool over like they it's like willful ignorance like they choose not to know or something like that. Like you choose to believe the lie. Mm -hmm. And so that's 
where I was, like my adopted mother's father was very dark-skinned Native American. And then my adopted father's mother was a fairly dark-skinned Native American, mostly Native American woman as well, who used to wear her hair short in a curly perm. And so I don't know if that's true, if that's really what she is or not. That's just what they told me, and they lied a lot. So, Hmm. you know, I just tried to piece it all together. I think at one point I told somebody my brother left me outside too long, like just trying to make make it make sense to me. Because when I asked her one time, why, why is my skin this color and yours? Because she's, they're all very, very fair. Her mother is redheaded and two cousins are redheaded and they all freckle and very icy blue eyes. I'm like, why do you look like that? I look like this. You look just like me. Get out of my face. Stop asking me these questions. I'm like, really? But wow. do I really though? She's trying to make it make you believe that you looked like her when you really didn't. Gaslighting. Wow. She's probably gaslighting herself, too, though, to mm. be honest. Kamina's adoptive family was composed of her adoptive mother and father and an older brother, 10 years her senior, who was biological to their parents. She said she never knew why her parents adopted her if they had a biological child, and she wishes she had gotten that answer before she cut her adoptive family off. Kamina realizes that the answer she would have gotten probably doesn't matter anyway because her adoptive mother lied to her frequently. When she described life at home and how their family got along together, Kamina said there was dysfunction. But as she was living in it and there were dysfunctional families around her own, she just kind of believed that the way she was living was the way life is. Kamina describes a bit of the relationship between her adoptive parents. He would come in from a day and try to like kiss her and greet her. And she would like, ugh, get away from me. I always, I remember it very vividly. And she slept with a barrier of pillows in between them. And then when we went on vacations, it would be either my adopted brother and me and my dad or me and my adopted brother and my mom. And very rarely it was usually with both parents, unless it was a wedding or a funeral. Wow. Wedding or funeral. They don't like they didn't like each other very much. Or he seemed to like and you know, you find out about all the stuff that was going on afterwards. You know, I was a little kid, I didn't really know what was going on then. But apparently and and I shouldn't have known. They should they shouldn't have told me. It was none of my business ever. Right. I never wanted to know <laughs> all of the stuff. Like he was sleeping around and the woman he was sleeping with was following his wife around. It was just apparently very messy. I don't know. Maybe I was a distraction from her misery. I don't. I was going to ask. I don't know. I've heard other adoptees say that they were brought into the home as a band-aid for the bad relationship that their parents had, right? Let's have another child. And I wonder Mm. if you felt Less that it was an experiment to see, like, what will it be like for us as white people to raise a child of color and more like, uh oh, our marriage is in danger. Let's let's try to fix it. Let's give let's have another kid and let's see if that'll bond us. Did you get the sense that that was maybe what was going on? No. Well, I didn't because she didn't let him have any when it really counted. She didn't let him have any control of me at all. Not not the stuff that really counted, like. Like he couldn't punish me. He couldn't say yes or no to anything. 
Like he didn't have control of anything. And, you know, as I moved through my healing process and, and really deeply in 2021, I, I really took a moment to step back and look at men wounds in my life and not just mom wounds. And I remember being with him at his friend's house and I went to play because I, I grew up in a neighborhood that didn't have any kids. So I was excited when there were kids next door to play with. And But he did tell me not to go. And I went. And when I came back, he was so angry that he told me to pick up the chain that was in the yard, like he was going to hit me with it. And I just remember how terrified and humiliated I was. I mean, he didn't do it. But who? what possesses you to tell a, a small child that? I, I was young enough that I can't remember how old I was. So I must have been little. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it always did feel like he was kind of resentful to her that she didn't let him have any real control over me. And they fell apart, fell apart. I mean, really, really fell apart. That's what it was about, was about controlling me. Really? Wow. So I'm glad you mm-hmm. said that. Did you, in hindsight, do you feel like she felt possession over you? Less love, but more ownership. Well, what did she feel when I told her that her bio child was molesting me? I don't remember that. But when I finally was, when I was older, because I was sick of hearing how much she misses him and all this, I'm like, you know, and I just kind of let it spill out in my late teen years. And she said, oh, honey, she said, I, we didn't think you'd remember. I'm like, you knew? Oh, my God. You knew? She was like, yeah, you told me when you were little, we took you to a doctor. You didn't think you'd remember. I'm like, that's your answer to that? Wow. You didn't think that would leave any lingering effects or anything? Mm-hmm. So, yes, I felt like a, yes, I felt like a possession. And they had, it kind of had like a, and it's a stereotype, but it's a stereotype because it's relatively true how Asian parents kind of expect their kids to do this, this, and this, and this. And she kind of had this checklist for me like that. Mm-hmm. That's why I went, you know, to the magnet school and I started playing violin when I was like, I don't know, six. Mm-hmm. And like, I was supposed to be a doctor and I'm supposed to play violin and I'm supposed but I don't remember any warmth or cuddles or the only time I remember her cuddling me was a fever. I had a fever from a booster shot. And it's the only time I can remember her holding me. Kamina grew up in a home where she was abused by her older brother and her parents knew about it, but tried to sweep it under the rug, hoping she would not remember her trauma. She also shared that the food supply in her home was unhealthy to the point that she was a large, overweight child very early in life. Since she was a heavy young lady, people stopped picking her up in the affectionate way adults often do with kids. I had never thought about it before, but when our children get to be overweight early in life, they become too heavy for the close affection and comfort they seek, so it slows down or even stops. We explored some of what Kamina experienced growing up. I'm sorry that you endured all of that. I mean, the abuse, the molestation is one thing, but also the parental lack of affection and proper care in terms of what you said, the lack of nutrition, all of that stuff. I mean, it just doesn't sound like it was a very healthy home to live in at all. The parents 
didn't model much love for each other. So I suspect your relationships with other people were damaged from what you saw was modeled to you. You know, I mean, I'm really sorry that those are some of the well, things. Well, you, you know, to, to be fair, aside, aside from all, like, let's just take me out of it. I think that they're just kind of anyways, average parents for those that tail end of baby boomers that had us X, you know, the tail end of the Xers. Cause I'm a, I'm at the tail end of the Xers. I'm 44. And I think that all of us had parents like that, that, that were just like, don't come like when the streetlights come on, you need to be in the house. And otherwise they didn't really like care. Like, <laughs> please go get out of my face. Like, weren't all our parents kind of like that in like when we were kids i gotta say no no i think oh yours weren't really i think i think that i hear where you're going and yes that generation did kind of do that but what you've outlined is a greater level of dispassionate lack of care for a child that i'm hearing than is it's not normal for a family, right? The not picking a child up, not hugging. You can only remember one hug when you had a fever from a shot being molested. I don't know what don't. normal is. That's my point. I don't so, know what normal is. So I yeah, got to, I don't know what normal is. I got to disagree, disagree with you that that isn't normal. And I, and I'm not faulting you for thinking that it might have been normal because the only normal you would know is the one that you lived and, and I just, I hear you on sort of trying to give them some kind of pass, but I, I can't grant that pass. I'm sorry. It just doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> as much, as much as I possibly can. Cause I have enough things to be a little bit angry about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have to, I have to be able to see people as human, right? Like yes. see them as, you know, really, doing the best that they can or else you know how do you make it through if you don't like have are not able to empathize not able to like show some compassion otherwise the deeper you get into it you're just like well might as well just kill myself like that's if i can't find some way to relate to them as people because if if i just painted it the way that i see it then they're monsters if I just I paint you. it the way that, you know, through my through my four year old Kamina eyes, yes. they're they're monsters. And but I, they're I people that. too. Yeah, so. and they are people too. And what I'm hearing is sort of the mixture of seeing it through the four year old's eyes and the young person who was being abused and neglected, but reflecting on it from the adult stage of where you are now as a worldly person who has experienced a lot of human interaction and can reflect on that. And so I think one of the things I would love to just challenge you to do is maybe instead of, and these might not be the right words, but maybe instead of sort of trying to empathize with them or grant them a pass, maybe think about what it was that they came from that made them that way. There's always something we we build on our experiences. And I think if you're going to try to grant them a pass in some form or fashion, it feels to me like it should come from you 
feeling sorry for whatever happened to them to make them like they were. Do you does that make sense? Sure. It so, does. Yeah. It does. I, I just don't There's want so you to own their shit. In them. That's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that. I don't and I don't want well, cause I really, to. I really had a therapist who did that to me though. Mm-hmm. And I and, and she eventually like gave me the most horrible cold shoulder breakup. But I really appreciate you doing that because she kind of rode me into the ground. She was like Oh, they did the best they could. And I'm like, whose side are you on here? Exactly. And, but yeah. And she's exactly. like, oh, you know, but she had to do something right. Let's focus on the, on the positive. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I think you can focus on positive, but also acknowledge reality. And, mm-hmm. and the positive, but the positivity is your growth and your, the fact that you're here today to be able to talk about this. You know, right. the reality is all that you endured. And and I, again, I just don't want you to own other people's stuff because it's not yours to own. It's yours to heal from it, to my mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Kamina wishes her family could get some healing because she's done the work to overcome her experiences. And she believes her family should have some healing of their own. But as Kamina talked more about her family, she revealed even more unbelievable poor behavior. When she was a young teenager, her mother allowed her to date a much older man. But you're not going to believe what also happened. She was having an affair with a guy that she was allowing me to see. 27-year-old man that she was allowing me, and she was having an affair with him. And her and her husband, it would just, they both became alcoholics. They never drank or even cursed around me. They both became very serious alcoholics. He started beating her. He raped her. And this was 13, 14. So let me pause for a quick second for clarity. So what I just heard you say was you were 13 or 14 years old. You're dating Mm -hmm. a 27 year old and 26. I think when I met him, Mm mm-hmm. And your adopted mother was sleeping with that guy that you were dating. So, so, so I say dating, but now that I am an adult and I am able to look on it with the eyes of an adult, I understand that I was being abused and she was allowing me to be abused. So we talk about the over-sexualization of the black girl's body. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, yeah, she's grown. It's fine. And it's not. I was 14. She said, oh, you're grown. Yes. And she was going to sign for me to marry him. Oh, oh my gosh. And she, yeah, too, was she sleeping was with him. Is that correct? Yes, because she was helping me sneak around to see him. So in the process of helping me sneak around to see him, she spent a lot of time around him. And, and she fell in love. And he took her for everything she was worth. He, like, maxed out all of her credit cards. He was going to kill my, my adopted dad. Oh, it was just, wh- people would be like, oh, Jerry Springer. I'm like, no, it's much worse than that. Mm-hmm. Much, much, much worse than that. There's no, like, there's no picture I can paint of it that, that would, would help you understand how chaotic and scary. And it, it got really, really bad because I guess it was a blessing in disguise because I don't know how I would have found out otherwise. Because she was sleeping with the guy that I was seeing, he 
told me, you know, because he's an adult, so he can see what, you know, he sees I'm not their child. He said, you know, Kamina, you're, you're, you're half black. He was like, so he, then he tells me the story she told him, which is the, like the third lie that I'm theirs is the first lie, you know? So second lie that, well, it's not a lie. I'm half black, but she said that she had an affair and got pregnant with somebody else's child and her husband adopted me as his child. So she has led you to believe that not only you are biologically related to her, but also that you are not a person of color. Right. My birth certificate says white. My birth certificate says white, white mother, white father, white mother, white father makes white child. Last time I checked. (laughs) Yeah. That's the math that maths for me. Wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So what did you think? Mm -hmm. This guy, that you are being allowed to see. I don't know how to call it, but yeah, this guy being abused by this guy that mm-hmm. your mother is allowing you to be abused by reveals to mm-hmm. you that you are biracial and, and you're 14. That was horrible. What, what was went horrible. through your mind? Yeah, it was horrible. It was, it was horrible. And so this is why I have real big issues with not just, white families adopting other but especially black men have babies with white women and then they split up children usually stay with mothers so in working in education system we are drawn to people who remind us of ourselves so i draw a lot of little girls that look like what i looked like when i was little and kind of look like me and kind of lost and come from a you know a single white mother home and they're, they don't like themselves. And that's where I was. Like before I even knew I was black, like I always tried to bleach my hair. I almost lost all my hair. I'd try to put the permanents in it and I would bleach it blonde and I wore blue contacts. I told you I come from a family of fair, you know, these people who adopt me, all these fair people. Of course, I want to look like a Barbie doll. And I didn't. So when I found out, and it's so shameful to say it, and it makes me feel so guilty, I, I didn't want it. I didn't want to be black. I didn't want to be black. I was like, what, what the fuck? I was like, well, I'm half white and I'm half black, so that makes me Mexican. But I speak Spanish fluently, and I grew up you know, in, in West Texas. I was like, so for a long time, I just ignored it and just stayed in the Mexican side of the hood when she finally put me out and just ignored it for a long time. Yeah, for a long time until I was about 16 or 17. Just take me back for a quick second. What was the reason that she put you out of the house? Why did she call the police? We were fist fighting over the guy. Let me express it, though, because this is what I I think people need to hear this because people are like, oh, police are so great. The police came to my house. I'm 14 years old. And the police said, you have to leave from here. I'm like, go where? And they said, we don't care, but you have to get out of here. And I'm like, so I'm supposed to go where? Again, we don't care, ma'am, but you have to go out of here. So they saw a white woman, a scared white woman, and an angry black woman. I was 14. Those 
cops should be under the jail, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. They so I, I guess that's my way. education is yeah. absolutely, mm. absolutely, mm. Mm. 100%. And they stayed there until I, I, I packed up what I could in my little trash bags and walked to the corner to wait for somebody to come pick me up. One of the girls in Kamina's neighborhood picked her up, and that's where her life got very rough. She kept her clothes in different places here and there, slept in alleys, churches, and occasionally at someone's house. One friend's mother was a heroin addict, so there was a steady stream of men dealing drugs and coming in and out of that house. That house was unsafe for a young woman like Kamina, so she chose to sleep on top of part of the local church. That time in her life does not have a lot of firm memories for Kamina. She said she loses track of time when she reflects on that part of her life. Many people have expressed their sorrow for how Kamina's life was or for her plight as a young woman bouncing around. But Kamina said it actually felt better for her to be out on her own than to be in her adoptive parents' house. Not to be up under them with all of their chaos and not have to worry about coming home to find her dead or in a, you know, because I, I found her like in pools of her own urine and or, or passed out in the tub and I thought she was dead. So not having to do all that stuff anymore, not having to fight with her. It was, you know, it was all right. I was a kid. I didn't have to go to school. You know, I, I was with, you know, people who seemed to care about me. It, it really wasn't that bad. Looking back on it, I'm like, oh, that was bad. But as a kid, it was like, whew, you know. Yeah. You get to like, exhale from the chaos and pressure. Was she passed yeah. out because of her raging drinking? Is that what it was? Oh, she became both of them. Both of them became horrible, horrible alcoholics. I don't know why I've never been good with dates, but I all I can say is that in 2008, he finally succeeded in drinking himself to death. Oh, and she had so many DUIs that she finally killed somebody and they put her in prison for oh, 10 years. Kamina said her life was chaotic from there, so she has a hard time piecing together a chronological recount of her life back then. As we talked, she revealed how disjointed her life was. There was no structure where you wake up, get dressed, go to school or work, come home, cook dinner, and then go to bed, such that you can actually count the days as they go by. Instead, Kamina's life lacked any structure or boundaries. She didn't finish the 10th grade while she was on the street, but she later earned her GED. Eventually, Kamina got a job at Golden Corral, and she lived with a man who was also too old for her. The guy was a crack addict, got mad at her for not giving him the money she earned from her tips from her job, so she moved out and became a roommate with another young woman. At one point, Kamina got a job as a stripper. She met a 34-year-old man and got married when she was 19 after knowing the guy for only three weeks. There was a lot of bouncing around, surviving, existing, but not living. I asked Kamina, what was the first point of stability that she can remember in her life? The military. Basic training was hell for a lot of people, but it was wonderful for me. <laughs> so I really related, again, when you were telling me, you know, what we were talking about earlier, I really saw myself in so much of what you were saying. It was very hard to, to hear because I saw so much of myself in what you were saying. Of course, we thrive in a regimented situation when we've never had regiment before. 
you know, when, when you know what time you're going to wake up and you know that you're going to have a nice, hot, healthy meal and you get, you're getting paid literally to exercise. You're getting paid to go learn stuff. How cool was that? That was amazing for me and scariest. Everybody's getting excited to leave at the end. And I'm terrified. At 19, Kamina had married a 34-year-old man after knowing him for only three weeks. She said she's always looked older than she is, so he dressed her up to look the part. But she admitted she looked mature, but was not. He did commercial construction, a job that took him all over the country. So she lived all over the place and had accumulated traffic tickets in every state they lived from her poor choices behind the wheel. Therefore, all that moving around left her with no stability in her history. Her military recruiter had accepted her falsified personal history, which omitted her multiple tickets in various states and overlooked her unstable past. When it was time to get out of boot camp, she worried the Army would find out who she really was. By the time they did discover Kamina's sordid past, it was easier to just keep her as a recruit. They just accepted her into the system. Kamina said that level of falsifying life facts is a component of childhood post-traumatic stress disorder, or CPTSD. Lying about stuff that regular people don't have to lie about. Uh-huh. Oh, that's <laughs> Job history, uh, making up references, payslips, resumes, all that kind of stuff. Because those of us with very intense CPTSD don't have those things. So it's like lies that you tell others and lies that you tell yourself that you don't, you've been doing it so long that you don't even think about it. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I had another guest tell me that she was lying about a a lot of things and that finally one, one day someone just busted her on it. It was like, you don't have to lie about this stuff. And then she finally faced her own truth and realized what lies she was telling. And now she's like an extreme truth teller. Which, you know, is probably both great for her, but maybe terrible for some other people who have to face her truths. But it's just really interesting to hear that, you know, that CPTSD manifests itself in that way. I've never really thought about it. It's really interesting. Kamina's ex-husband had moved them to South Carolina while he traveled the country. So when it came time for her South Carolina Army National Guard release, she returned to the same city where she had been living before enlisting. Before joining the Guard, Kamina had been stripping. When she enlisted, some of her trainers and drill sergeants knew her from that part of her life. There was no escape from her former life, but the military was providing some stability. After boot camp in the regular army, troops are deployed to duty stations across the country and around the world. When Kamina was released from the National Guard boot camp, she was sent to the community she had come from, a place she had been trying to escape. When Kamina was kicked out at 14 years old, there was no longer anyone to celebrate or commemorate big life events like Thanksgiving, Christmas, or birthday observances with. She said before she got kicked out, she really hadn't had any birthday celebrations anyway, so big momentous occasions in her life just flew by, unacknowledged, except for when she marked them with self-sabotage. Kamina said, She's not a drinker, but she had four DUIs driving under the influence charges against her, and they were all on birthdays, at the holidays, or when her adoptive father passed away. I was adult failure to thrive. 
to be honest. I think that I had tried to kill myself when I was 14 and the doctors scared me so bad. I think that I've had lots of car accidents. I'm very, very clumsy. I really and truly feel like there was a part of me that really desperately didn't want to be here. Not, not think, I know. There's a part of me that just didn't want to be here. And the doctors had scared me about trying to kill myself myself. So I, I just felt like subconsciously, if I die of neglect or something like that, then it would be okay. So at 14, Kamina found out she was biracial, a fact she avoided and never confronted for a while. Eventually, Kamina found her way into the black community and her eyes were opened to the culture she is a part of. I was like, oh, this is great. This is great. And and that, and returning to like how frustrated I am with black children, you know, they're biracial, but they're black. Nobody, nobody talks about the president, Barack Obama, and says, oh, that great biracial president. No, they say that black president. We're, we're, you know, whatever, whatever a biracial person chooses to call themselves, we're black. <laughs> I'm, I'm black. So I, I'm sad for kids that don't get a chance to have that kind of immersion. I've had other adoptees tell me it's too late. I'm not accepted. Black people think I'm weird. They don't like the way that I talk. And, you know, for me, it was like a full on immersion. You know, I'm with this group and I've you know, I've gotten burned a couple of times. People have things to say, you know, we, we, we are a community that is hard on ourselves because we have trauma that presents as culture. And that's not, those aren't my words. Those are Resma Minikin and wrote an amazing book called My Grandmother's Hand about racialized trauma. And I'm, I'm trying very hard to work through it. I highly recommend it. To everyone, whoever is listening, white, black, blue, he writes the verb, the police, for white people and black people. And he says when culture, when trauma has been present too long in a person, it's mistaken as personality. And when trauma presents itself for too long in a community, it's mistaken as culture. So, wow. And so I don't think it was a conscious thing. But I really did kind of immerse myself and there's no way that I could go back at this point and I wouldn't want to versus, you know, that it's very, very different now that, oh, my God, no, I don't want to be black versus like, yes, I'm a, a proud, really amazing black woman mm-hmm. now at this point, which it was not words that would have been able to come out of my mouth then. So I really did have to put a lot of, of time and energy and and continue to put a lot of time and energy to learn about my roots and where I've come from. And that's, that's a big part of why reunion was so important to mm-hmm. me. Kamina's adoptive mother had a car accident that killed another person, which sent her to prison for 14 years. While her adoptive mother was in prison, Kamina remained in contact with her adoptive aunt, a functional alcoholic who always smelled like expensive perfume and wine. At that time, Kamina still believed her adoptive mother was her biological mother. It's what she had always been told. One day, Kamina asked her aunt about her birth father's identity. The aunt said, Oh, honey, she was like, all, all I really remember is that your dad was in the Navy and your mom was Italian. I was like, what? Kamina's adoption was revealed to her for the first time truthfully. 
Kamina made a special visit to see her adoptive mother in prison to ask what her aunt was even talking about. When she confronted her adoptive mother behind bars, the woman lied again. She said she was always heavy, so she was able to disguise her pregnancy, but that she told her family that she was going to adopt because it was easier than sharing with her family that she was pregnant by a black man. I asked Kamina what she thought when her aunt used the word adopted. Well, now, in hindsight, I remember when they had quit speaking for like some years and I remember missing her a lot and you not really understanding why they weren't speaking. Yes. And in, in hindsight, I believe and I think that she said it as well that my, my adopted mom had quit speaking to her because she had told her she was going to tell me. Uh-huh. She was going to let the cat out of the bag and your mother was like, no. And, and she... And she said she doesn't know what happened. She said my mom had all kinds of books and stuff on like how to tell the kid. And she's like, she had planned to tell you. And I don't know what happened. By the age of 32, Kamina had been in the military for 10 years, but her life was falling apart. She had remarried, but her ex-husband cheated in what she called the most heinous way. Kamina had stopped smoking weed, but her substance abuse had returned so her military career was ending. Self-sabotage was back and wreaking havoc. Her transmission had just failed on her car, and then, while her adoptive mother was still incarcerated, one of the woman's friends was looking for her, but found Kamina on Facebook Messenger. And she said, almost verbatim, she said, I know that you don't remember me, but I remember when your mother and father adopted you, what a special time that was. Kamina decided to call her adoptive father's mother, whom she had never really been close with, but she wanted to ask about her adoptive mother's friend and what that woman had also revealed about Kamina being adopted. Her grandmother tried to pass the woman's statement about Kamina's adoption off as that friend being jealous of her adoptive mother, trying to spin a tale because she always wanted to be with Kamina's adoptive father. Another lie. Oh, the tangled webs we weave. <laughs> Here was your opportunity. I'm an adult now. I'm not a child. I'm an adult. I'm 32 years old. You didn't think that this was a good time to tell me that I'm adopted? So she let that go on. So I was like frustrated and I emailed the woman back and I said, you know, thanks for like dropping some tidbits that I don't know. And she emailed me back and she was like, you stinker, you had me believing that I had told you something you didn't know. And I was like, oh, you've talked to my mom. Mm -hmm. And I was furious. I called her sister. I said, because, so the woman was emailing me because she was looking for my mother because apparently she had just got out of prison. So I called her sister. I was like, is she out? She said, yes. I said, do you know where she is? She said, yes. I'm like, okay. I said, "How? what's her state of mind? Because she went into, into prison really late in life, mm. you know, and to have done 10 years in prison, like, man, I can only imagine, you know, so late in life and to be such a snowflake too, like, you know, mm. very privileged and all this university education and good background. I can't even, I can't imagine. I said, so 
she's out. I was like, what's her frame of mind? I said, is, is she in a mental place? Because she already knew what this was about. I said, I, I got an email from Louise. She said, yeah, I heard. So I was like, so can you think it's safe to talk with her? She was like, yeah, I think, and I think you should. And she gave me her, her, her number. And I'm like, and she went into the whole, I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. I was like, I need, I need to know the truth. Mm -hmm. I was like, "And, and why did you tell Louise that I knew? And she was like, oh, come on, Kamina, you knew. I was like, put it back on you. After you had asked her more than once, pointed out your differences, she put it back on you that you knew when she never actually said it. You knew. I'm like, wow. I was like, so so now I'm wrong for believing your lies. I'm like, and I'm not sure how I snapped at her, but I definitely did snap because she tried to like put the little, I don't know if you know anyone from Texas, there's something very malicious that they do to women in Texas, this whole, oh, honey, this syrupy, sweet drawl kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. She was like, and it was like a light switch and it was just venomous. She's like, what? Fine, fine. What do you, what do you want from me? What do you want to know? I think I want to know if you're my mother. And at this point, I'm still like even kind of hoping. (laughs) Like I really, I really was. I really still believed at this point. And she was like, fine, you're adopted. What more do you want from me? I'm like, wow. Okay. Wow. And it was like getting kicked in the chest by Clydesdale. It took the breath out of me. Without me falling and hitting anything, it literally knocked the breath out of me. I don't really have have good words mm-hmm. for how shocking and painful that was. And the pain, pain isn't even a good... I, I couldn't even register pain at that moment. Mm-hmm. A better word is shock. Yeah. Like, I, I probably was in actual shock. Yeah, that's a very, I think people look for words for what that could feel like. But if you haven't been through it, that fact that it's such an existential thing, like literally your entire life, that's what was just expressed in that moment is it's not what you were led to believe. There's no way to register it on a pain scale or sort of describe the feeling. I I could totally see how shock and sort of dissociation and everything would be appropriate there. That's unbelievable. And I'm sorry that she put you through that because that's decades of you asking, pointing out, sort of tempting her to share. And then finally, after her release from prison and you've seemingly backed her into a corner based on her own sister's admission of the situation, now she's just like, Psh, fine, right? It's, and it, was, it came out really mm-hmm. ugly and awful, and I'm sorry for that. Kamina called all of the hospitals and adoption agencies in Dallas for information about her adoption. Unfortunately, she only heard obstacles to her search, like she would need to fill out a petition for documents, her records were sealed, and the usual hurdles adoptees faced before this modern age of online information and community support. Kamina was getting out of the military. Her life was unstable, so she tried to make peace with the fact that she would never know her origin story. 
but there was no peace in not knowing. As she spoke, Kamina referenced a famous quote from Buddhism that says, no matter where you go, there you are. My understanding is it basically means no matter where you try to run, if you have unresolved issues, they will travel with you to every place you try to go. When Kamina left the military, she started to get her life together. In 2010, she moved overseas and started working in education. She said her work in education has been a fantastic fit for her and it keeps her out of trouble because the opportunities for self-sabotage abroad are not as readily apparent as when she lives in the United States. But 2020 was also the year that COVID put life on pause for the entire world and it forced Kamina back to the United States. Kamina proudly shared that in 2020, she earned her master's degree from Arizona State with a 4.0 GPA. When her birthday rolled around, Kamina was supposed to meet someone to celebrate, but she got stood up. Kamina got drunk during the day, and when she woke up, she didn't know where she was. The only thing that was clear was Kamina was in jail. And that was it. And that was it. I hadn't been in trouble in a very long time. Everything had been very good. And I just recognized that I was running for myself. And I was like, this can't, this can't continue to go on. And I'm honestly not sure, maybe a whisper from the universe. I'm not sure. It was kind of like a rock bottom. I had nowhere else to like go. I don't know what to say other than that. I don't even know where like the whisper of the idea came from, but I was just at absolute rock bottom. Being back in the United States was horrible. I was doing temp work that was way below me. It was just horrible. I don't have any, I quit talking to my adoptive family when I came overseas around 2012. I quit talking to the woman and her husband drank himself to death in 2008. So, but I, I hadn't talked to any of them in a long time. So I've nobody really. And I came back to the United States and I was like, well, there's DNA tests. Let's see what happens. Kamina's temp job offered her a lot of time to do research. So she got a family tree DNA test, then went online. There were tons of people online to help, but Kamina doesn't like the term search angel as the word, quote, angel promotes an image of saviorism for her. She said the person who agreed to help her ended up being pretty racist. But her search supporter did reveal that Dallas had a progressive judge seated who was a birth mother, and her supporter helped her find a second search supporter who actually focuses on the state of Texas. Kamina was focused on finding her birth father because, in her mind, she already had predicted the scenario for her adoption. Knowing her birth mother was Italian, she figured the young woman had told her family that she was pregnant by a black man, and the family forced her to give Kamina up for adoption. Kamina was interested in hearing the man's side of the story. However, Kamina's search supporter was a birth mother who had preconceived notions about what Kamina's course of action should be pushing Kamina to find her birth mother first. Unfortunately, they were not able to find her birth father, so Kamina was forced to search for her birth mother after all. Her supporter suggested she do an ancestry DNA test because their database of connections was more robust than family trees. At first, Kamina didn't have a lot of connections on ancestry, but her search supporter was really good, so it only took from January to April to find her birth mother and hear her voice. 
I wondered how Kamina's first conversation with her birth mother was. Not good. She was on the golf course and it felt very superficial. Forced. Like, well, hey. Yeah, forced. That's a good word for it. Forced. No, superficial. Okay. Superficial. So I re- returned back to that Texas thing. Remember I told you the women have to be like, oh, bless your heart. And she's, she sounds a lot like my adopted mother. A lot. Because they're both Texas, you know, white women. And sounds a lot like my adopted mother. A lot. And it was very cognitive dissonance. I don't know. She, it, I knew it wasn't her, but it sounded like her, which was disturbing. You know, they use a lot of the same isms because they're, you know, Texas women. And I'm just like, oof. But she's like, oh, we're on the golf course, honey. I'm going to. I'll give you a call back when we're done. I'm like, oh, okay. We spoke a lot for about two weeks. I have a YouTube channel and I made sure to, I like all of this was kind of chronicled up to this point because I wanted, I didn't want to get into the situation and do what I know that a lot of adoptees do, like kind of revert, mm-hmm. turn to childlike and not be able to say what I need to say. Mm-hmm. So before I met her, I made sure that there were plenty of videos that say, I am who I am in spite of you, not because of you. You are not allowed to take credit for who I am. My story is there. My backstory is there. And I needed her to understand before she ever spoke to me that I'm a very pro-black woman and that if that's not okay with her, then she can't take up space in my life. Mm-hmm. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. I I needed to put all that stuff down because that's exactly what happened. Even though I didn't really like what was going on, I didn't feel like I had much control over it. I felt like a child. I really did. I I didn't see her, but I still felt infantile. Wow. And we talked a lot and it, I feel like it went to mother really quickly. Hmm. I'm like, but you're not though. (laughs) But it was just a very confusing, very, very confusing. And she she said the thing that I wish white people wouldn't say. Oh, I'm not racist because I didn't even ask. And if you feel the need to tell me that you're not racist because then you probably are. So I, as I'm as I'm moving through this, I'm becoming more and more uncomfortable with this. And, you know, I've heard other people say on here as well, and I did a video on my channel called The Unintended Consequences of Reunion. And my, when I cut, so my mother and my brother cut me off because I needed to take some time because the racism was just too much. And so they both blocked me on Facebook and blocked my phone number, I think. I was like, all right, fine, whatever. Because I was trying to figure out how to, to take a step back anyways. So, whatever. So it worked out well. Um, it's fi- Yeah, absolutely fine. Because at least then, then I didn't have to say it. But I was being honest in my videos. And I, I guess she was feeling convicted. But her sister and her sister's kids still wanted to try to engage me. I said, so here's the thing, guys. I said, you think that I'm just Italian, but I'm actually black. And if you want to be in my life, you have to figure out what being an advocate looks like. And that's not for me to teach you. Mm. That's for you to like take it upon yourself 
to learn. And I'm like, you only have like a certain amount of time to show me that you're making some progress because we can't continue on the way that we are. Yeah. Wow. And I can say that to them. I can't say it to my, my mom though, because really I, I revert right back to being a child when I, when I speak with her. It's crazy how we so, it's really unbelievable. It really, it really, really is. It's quite sickening when you have something to say and yeah. you can't. <laughs> yeah, right, right, it's right. It's sickening. It's yeah. sickening. Kamina said she had some challenges with her search supporters. One placed expectations on Kamina's search and one had racist tendencies. But since Kamina had gotten her birth father's name, her search supporter was able to find the man. I wanted to hear more about that part of Kamina's journey. Yeah, she found him really quickly and texted me. This is like against the rules. Text me to tell me deceased with a history of violence. Oh, does that seem like a, an appropriate way you? to tell? Oh, exactly. So I said, so I called her. I said, did, did the violence negate his entire life? Did it? I mean, <laughs> so yeah, she found him, but she didn't try anything else. So I actually encountered an adoptee in an adoptee group who reached out to me who does genealogy as well. She said, give me the information that she has and let me see if I can find your brothers and sisters. And she, it took her about 24 hours. And so what was important to me in 2021 was she found my, my dad's record. And my dad's record scared, scared the shit out of me, Damon. Mm. It scared the shit. Looking at his life on paper, I was like, what happened to you? Because it looked like me. I was the the chaos and the just all over the place and in and out of jail. And he was in the army too. He, he was a Marine and went to Vietnam and he had to have been in so much pain. He was just all over the place and drugs and alcohol and violence and in and out of jail. And it was just horrible to look at. And it scared me because he died so young. Is it fair to say that the examination of his life on paper and how scary it was for you. Was that looking in the mirror a bit? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Terrifying. It's the only way that I feel connected to any of them at all. Isn't that a shame? Yeah, it really is. Wow. It's the only way I feel connected to any of them. And I feel like it's the gift he gave me. I do. I feel like it was a gift. He gave me from beyond the grave because he died after I found out I was adopted. I feel like it's it's a gift because I feel like I might have self-destructed. I have done the really, really heavy lifting and continue to do that heavy lifting work that I needed to do to really attend to my inner child and reconcile my adult and baby me to start loving me and it's always lip service until it can actually happen mm -hmm. but i'm at that place now and that's the gift that my father's record gave me because it scared me it was really scary the he, gift was that self-reflection and the and now the whoa, space to yeah. say let me let me work on myself more oh yeah and but so so knowing he was dead was one thing but talking to my sister and hearing what what happened and i know other adoptees who don't cry, but I did. Mm -hmm. I mean, like uh, uncontrollably, like 
and it's I don't know for so many I cried for him for me for for what happened to him for him not you know me not getting to meet I don't know I cried for so many things but he died a horrible death drug related Mm. horrible death and it was so hard to find him because he didn't want an obituary and he's not buried oh yeah so there was no connection no connection Kamina has connected with her paternal siblings she said she tried to talk with one of her sisters, but they have nothing in common, and they're very different, having led very different lives. Kamina has said more than once that she's had to do a lot of work on herself. I asked her how she's doing now. I'm great. <laughs> I am. I'm great. This was a hard vacation, I won't lie. This is my first time abroad, post-COVID, post-reunion, post-coming out of the fog, and it's hard. Everybody wants to convince you about how wonderful adoption is when you mention you're adopted. Like, oh, I'm sorry you had a bad situation, but let me tell you how great my sister is doing who is adopted. So so I'm still trying to recover a little bit from that, but falling in love with myself and learning that I can, not that I, I can take care of myself, not that I can take care of the baby in me that threw the tantrums that caused us problems, knowing that I have got her 100% her best interest at heart at all times, knowing that I'm not ever alone because I've got me and I've got my community. And I'm really like, you know, healing is a forever journey when you have this kind of trauma it's forever. It's like having diabetes. You have to treat it forever. So, you know, there's good days and there's bad days, but there's no days like the days before I started this journey. That's amazing. I can hear the strength in you too, Kamina. It's it, when you said, I'm great. I was like, I almost anticipated you would say that because I can feel how you've built yourself up and I just think that's amazing. I really do. Because you have been, I mean, the story you have told here, I say story, but the the life journey that you have conveyed is extraordinary. And while I'm sorry you had to endure any of it, the, the power that I hear in your voice for who you have fallen in love with as yourself is really awesome. And I congratulate you for that and your continued growth. And I appreciate you being here to tell the story. Thank you. Thank you for believing me. Yeah. Thank you for believing. You know, sometimes people say that they're okay and you know, you're like, "Mm," but are you really? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm glad that you believe it. I do. I do. And I appreciate you being here, Kamina. Thank you so much. I know it's super late or super early, however you want to look at it. So get some rest. The sleep is about to be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You take care. I'll talk to you later. All the best to you, all right? Thanks, Damon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. Kamina's life journey started so rough with disconnected alcoholic parents, deception about her adoptee status, being kicked out at 14, and fighting self-sabotage to try to find solid footing in her life. I found myself wishing she had more than a superficial golf course conversation with her birth mother, and I could feel how painful it was for Kamina to unpack some of the tragic story of her birth father's life, especially as a reflection of her own trajectory. 
It was incredible to hear that Kamina eventually earned her master's degree and had taken the hard lessons of her birth father's life to heart in fueling her own growth. I loved hearing Kamina's inner determination to fight for the little girl she loves inside herself, to put herself in situations abroad where self-sabotage won't continue to be chapters in her story, and to know that she's pushing forward as a positive black woman who is advocating for herself. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Kamina's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I really? Oh, and I saved you a little piece of my conversation with Kamina about her time in Iraq. It was fascinating to hear what an educator in a foreign land might have to endure, and I think you deserve to hear this other part of Kamina's life. One more quick personal question. What do you teach in Iraq? You said you're at a university? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just, so I've been, I've been doing this for over a decade. Wow. So, yeah. So it, it just depends on where I'm at, what I've got going on. But here in particular, this is special in my heart for these kids because, you know, of what the United States did to their country. And it's a travesty. They are going to study at the American University of Iraq at Baghdad. And they have to do that in English, completely in English. So and not it's not about just learning English. It's about learning the academic English, being able to write write essays, being able to, you know, know that a that a proper speech is going to have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, these kinds of things that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. And these are kids are coming in post COVID, post war. So it's a you know some has has kind of a special place in my heart to be able to help them, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that, honestly. It's it's very stressful. Mm -hmm. It's a very stressful place to work. Because of the turmoil in Baghdad? I'm very sensitive and empathic and wherever I go in the, wherever I go in the world, I feel the energy of the people in that place. Mm -hmm. And it's a very similar energy to the United States right now mm-hmm. it's a lot of frustration and anger and chaos and they've not given them much to work with so they they turn that on anyone that they can and i'm a very warm-hearted gentle open person with them so they kind of direct that at, at me mm-hmm. so i've been having like the kind of anxiety that causes your heart to hurt i've never had that before wow. i thought I had heart disease. It, I I was so stressed. I'm working 12, 14 hours a day, and I'm a passionate educator. But this is, I don't know that I'd be able to to sacrifice myself for them. Probably not. So we'll yeah. see what happens next. Wow. So first of all, it's admirable that you're trying to be part of a solution, and I really appreciate that you're trying to do that for those folks. But I also hear what you're saying that it's absolutely a travesty and a massive challenge to bear the burden as an American of both your empathy and like being probably one of their sole targets around that is a representative that they can vent on. And I'm sure it's not in a lot of healthy ways. So I'm sorry for that. And you're, but you're absolutely right. Like the challenge of sacrificing yourself for, 
their benefit. Like you do have to weigh how much of myself can I give to this before it's too much and I've given all of myself away and, and they've taken it all. Right. So I'm, it sounds like you're on your way towards making a healthier decision. And I'm, I wish you the best of luck in that. And I hope you find a really nice environment to teach in where you can recover from this because it's, it sounds Thank rough. you. Yeah. Probably, probably going to go ahead and go back to Mexico. I was going to do five years here because mm-hmm. the money is good and mm-hmm. buy a little property and do some permaculture in deep Southern Mexico. Cause that's mm-hmm. where I'm happiest but mm-hmm. I'm probably going to end up back in Southern Mexico sooner than later and probably not going to be able to buy the property outright like mm. I thought. But yeah. that's that's probably where I'll be next January is back in, in deep Southern Mexico. Gotcha. It's, a, it's more of a, a, it's a much happier place. And the, chill, the students are much more chill there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really good. I wish you the best of luck on that transition. And, and six months is going to be a Thank long time you. under that stress. So hang in there, okay? 